0: Hey folks, this is Joseph Taylor, and I want to welcome you to the Canopy Church Podcast. We are a brand new church practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of Chicago. We're so glad you've joined us today. I wanted to let you know that we are gearing up for our official online launch on January 3rd. This will be a big step into what's next, and we sincerely hope you'll not only consider joining us, but also invite some others to join you. Okay, let's jump in. Well, today we are continuing our series called Pushing Back the Darkness, where we've been building out a biblical theology of the practice of celebration. In our first week, we looked at how we are in this in-between, this liminal space, where we are on a massive scale, leaving behind much of what has come before, and yet not yet able to see what is coming Next. In some ways the season of Advent is the observance and even the celebration of liminality every year as we observe the what we could call the liminal space between the first coming of Christ and his second coming where he completes his work of renewing all things. Next we looked at how the genesis of our Celebration, or the root or the source of our celebration is found in the person, the character, and the activity of God himself. How creation in the beginning was the overflow of love and delight and, and shared as an intimate dance between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We saw how our Trinitarian God dances and sings and celebrates over us. Providing a root cause and infinite fuel for our celebration. Contrary to popular belief, God is the happiest, most joyful, and celebratory person or persons who has ever existed. Next, we consider the biblical case for celebration as a discipline. And I made the argument that celebration is an absolute priority for God and a command for his people. It is thus a matter of obedience and it must be a priority for us, one that we budget and that we plan for rhythmically, both as individuals and corporately as a church. It's a discipline that must affect our wallets and our calendars. The rhythmic practice of celebration. It ties us into the larger story, the truer story of who we are and of what God is on about in the world and in history. And finally, last week, we looked at why we engage in this kind of peculiar celebratory practice of singing every time we meet. As we saw, we sing in order to remember, in order to realign our hearts, and we sing in order to respond to God. So whether you fancy yourself as a singer or not, as Psalm 33 tells us, in light of who God is and what he has done for us, it is a good and appropriate response for us to sing. And there is significant Power that is unleashed when we sing. As as author Margaret Feinberg has written, when we fight back with joy, we awaken to the deepest reality of our identity as beloved, delightful children of God. Before we turn next week to a full-throated celebration of the coming of the Messiah, Today, we have to kind of round out our teaching on the theology of celebration by looking at one last big kind of missing piece of this theology. Now, Proverbs tells us that pride comes before a fall. And there's an entire category of sports fail videos known as premature celebrations that prove the point of the proverb pretty hilariously. Take this one, for example, where a guy begins celebrating finishing the Ironman triathlon. This is after having swam 2.4 miles, biked 112 miles, and then run an entire marathon besides. And with like three feet to go, he begins celebrating and breaks his foot. He seemed to have a good attitude about it, though. Or take this one, where a college runner racing in the 3,000 meter steeplechase begins celebrating his victory before the home crowd, right before being overtaken and losing the race. Oof, that hurts. Or here we've got a professional billiards player competing in Europe, and he thinks he's got it in the bag. So he begins showboating right before scratching to lose the game. Is it a game in billiards match? Who knows? And this one's my favorite because it's just really fun to laugh at professional golfers. So this guy, he is sure that he nailed this putt. And in his assurance, he tosses his club in the air and knocks the ball away from the hole while face planting into the green. Celebrating prematurely is a particularly embarrassing way to fail in sports. But there is a danger that our Christian celebrations could take on a similarly embarrassing and inappropriate tone if they are done prematurely. You see, th- there is this key ingredient that we each must bring if our celebration is to be true and honest and joyful. Richard Foster gets us in the ballpark when he writes, quote, Some people live in such a way that it is impossible to have any kind of happiness in their home. But then they go to church and sing songs and pray in the Spirit, hoping that God will somehow give them an infusion of joy to make it through the day. They're looking for some kind of heavenly transfusion that will bypass the misery of their daily lives and give them joy. But God's desire is to transform the misery, not bypass it. So if we think that our singing and our celebrations and our worship on their own will transform our lives and bring us happiness... We're deluded. On the contrary, if this key ingredient that we each must bring to our celebration is missing, our celebrations could become destructive, embarrassing, offensive even to God. Rather than push back the darkness, our celebrations will then just import the darkness into our Christian community, perhaps with a happy facade kind of slapped on it. But before we name this key ingredient that I keep referring to, I think it'll help for a moment to pull back and to first of all put a bit of definition to what I mean when I've been talking about the darkness. What is this darkness that the practice of celebration could help us push back? Well, I would suggest that the darkness that we are to push back is not the circumstances of liminality itself. In other words, if liminality is this situation where we are in between, where we are in these profoundly disorienting circumstances as we are leaving old familiar aspects of life behind, where hopes and plans and dreams are being left in the dust, but where we are not yet able to welcome what is to come, the darkness that we are pushing back against is not those disorienting circumstances themselves. At best, that would be an exercise in futility. At worst, we might find ourselves working or fighting against the plans and purposes of God himself. No, we can't in any real way push back the darkness of our current shared liminal circumstances. None of us can do much to affect the distribution of a COVID vaccine. None of us can change the current political climate or affect a peaceful transfer of power from one president to another. None of us can fix the economy or future-proof our careers or guarantee that our circumstances, both individual and collective, will improve. We have little control, little power to change our circumstances for the better. In other words, none of us is God. So what then is this darkness that we might somehow push back, in part, by a disciplined practice of celebration? Where can we meaningfully push back the darkness from our lives? I would suggest that there are four key types of darkness, or four dimensions to the darkness, that our celebration can actively work against, they are fear, despair, injustice, and sin. A brief word about the first three, and then kind of an extended word about the last, extended because it is critically important for our topic today. So first, a brief word about fear. As we have seen several times in this series, Celebration and singing, in particular, are potent weapons for fighting back against fear. The story of the folks from Highlander Folk School last week illustrated that point pretty powerfully. Our circumstances, our current circumstances, have surely been causing great fear to well up in each of us. Fear of failure. Fear of the loss of loved ones. Fear of being perceived as one of those Christians. Fear of this dreaded disease. Fear of political conflict. Fear that things might never return to something resembling normal. In the face of these fears, our celebration can be a potent weapon to push back the darkness. Despair is perhaps the darkening aspect of our current situation that requires the most urgent and pressing attention, or it's the one that has the most pressing need for attention. The stats that we are seeing with regard to suicide, depression, drug abuse, alcoholism, and mental health more generally, they are truly alarming. And all of these stats surely bear out the truth that widespread despair is coursing through our society. Despair defined as the complete loss or absence of hope. Maybe you have felt despair darken your heart in recent days. Have you been tempted to give up hope? to believe that God doesn't care about you or or can't or won't come through for you, we must push back against the darkness of despair. With regard to the darkness of injustice, it seems pretty clear to me that God has ordained that 2020 should serve as a catalytic moment for our country a moment of reckoning with our country's original sins of racism and white supremacy. It seems clear that God has ordained it, that this should be a time where we confront the realities of systemic injustice. And as we saw two weeks ago, God has always intended that the celebrations of His people be slanted toward benefiting the poor. God was way ahead of Bernie Sanders as the premise for his commands for the observance of a year of Jubilee was the wiping out of debts, the return of inheritance to those who had lost it, a leveling of the playing field for everyone, citizens, immigrants, widows, refugees, the disadvantaged, even of the land itself. In other words, Godly celebration is always oriented toward justice and equity. So it needs to be festive. It needs to be full of what Dallas Willard calls hilarity. And it also needs to be oriented towards justice. God is calling his people to to be a people who push back the darkness of injustice, in part, by the way we practice celebration. And finally, let us consider the darkness of sin. As I said, a more extended word is required on this one, in part because here we are moving closer to this big missing piece in our building out of a theology of celebration. When we talk about injustice, We're largely talking about structuralized moral wrongs, institutionalized. When we talk about sin, we are talking about personalized moral wrongs. Sin is not a particularly popular word, either in the broader culture or even in the church itself. Sin has never been a fun topic to explore, but in recent decades, it has fallen into greater and greater disuse. I wonder if maybe it correlates with what uh, the cultural critic Neil Postman called our amusing ourselves to death. Maybe we are so bent on filling our lives with things that entertain, amuse, and pleasure us that we have just no place for thinking much about such an unpleasant topic as sin. Perhaps it has more to do with kind of postmodernist radical individualism where essentially all morality is relativized for the individual, creating this opaque, ambiguous moral sea of you do you or do what feels right so long as you don't hurt anyone. In this cultural context, the entire premise of personal moral wrong, it becomes subjective, fluid. It becomes basically impossible to apply to an individual. To the moral relativist, sin, as the violation of some objective moral standard, it ends up making basically no coherent sense. And unfortunately, the church is as much to blame as anyone, maybe more so, for sin becoming such a neglected and uncommon thing. Scholar David Wells has pondered and written a great deal about this shift away from the language and the concepts of sin in late modern Western Christianity. And and Mr. Wells has concluded that in many churches, in too many churches, the only theology around is one in which God is, quote, God is on easy terms with modernity and is interested chiefly in church growth and psychological wholeness. Yet even if we believe that God cares about our psychological wholeness, and I absolutely believe that we should, we still have no reason to neglect acknowledging and talking about sin. Quite the contrary, In 1973, the world-renowned psychiatrist Carl Menninger wrote Whatever Became of Sin, the title of his book. And in this book, the doctor projected that the day would come when sin would no longer be an element of human vernacular. He speculated that the language of sin and wrongdoing as explanations for the state of the world and as an explanation for the state of individual life would be replaced by rationalizations uh, excusing individual accountability. Menninger lamented the loss of awareness in American society of human wrongdoing, which he defined as behavior that violates the moral code or the individual conscience or both. Behavior which pains or harms or disturbs my neighbor or me, myself. Menninger predicted the term sin would be completely replaced with words like illness, disorder, dysfunction, and syndrome. The human condition, he saw, would be excused as a product of biochemistry environment, upbringing, and trauma. Now, bear in mind, Menninger's interest in the entire topic was psychiatric. He was a practicing psychiatrist, and he had come to believe that much of mental health is symptomatic of moral health, that people who engaged in significant and unacknowledged wrongdoing tended to become edgy and depressed. Conversely, he believed that people who honestly and frankly acknowledged their wrongdoing and then made appropriate changes to their lives away from that wrongdoing tended to become much happier and more well-adjusted. So for Menninger, the confession of sin and the amendment or the alteration of life, what in Christian theology has historically been called repentance, Menninger believed that these two practices, confession and repentance, were two of the most psychologically healthy things a person could do. And he wrote that sinfulness was therefore one of the most hopeful diagnoses a psychiatrist could make. In his view, This was a sickness that the patient could do something about without pills. Well, Menninger wrote all of that 40 years ago. And it would be amazing to sit here today and to say that things have changed significantly for the better since that time. But of course they haven't. Whatever the exact cause or causes of its popular disuse, Sin is no longer a common word in the human vernacular. And yet it is one that we cannot ignore. We must not. It features prominently, irreplaceably in the biblical narrative. And it inherently factors in to our individual life stories, whether we would acknowledge it or not. It factors into the state of our lives right now at this very moment the good news that that brings great joy that we would celebrate in this season it's not good news at all without a place for the accounting of sin the bible has a lot to say about sin way more than we could cover today the pictures and the concepts that the scriptures put forward are varied And they are comprehensive. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. Sin is the missing of a target, a wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart or a stiff neck. It's both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach one. In sin, according to the scriptures, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling, just as it was in the garden in the beginning. So all of these and other images in the Bible suggest that sin is a deviance from an original design, so that one of the most fundamentally biblical things that we could say about sin is that even when sin is common, it is never normal Sin is an abnormal disruption of the created harmony. And then it's the resistance to the restoration of that harmony. We can start to see then the basis for the definition of sin put forward by the brilliant scholar and moral philosopher Cornelius Plantinga. He defines sin as the culpable disturbance of shalom. Let's break that down for a moment culpable in that we are each individually morally responsible. Disturbance in that sin is not just a a slip-up. It's not just an oops. Not just a light laughable mistake. It is a disturbance. And what does it disturb? Shalom. God's design for peace and order And goodness for all of his creation. Sin disturbs and warps the fabric of our reality. In some ways, those of us who have grown up in American evangelical traditions can have a harder time knowing what to do with sin, what category to put it in. Perhaps a harder time than than many others in other Christian traditions. And I think this is because in much of evangelicalism, sin is mainly seen as a problem as it relates to salvation and final judgment. A problem that is primarily dealt with when we surrender our lives to Jesus for the first time. And there is no question. There is no doubt that surrendering our lives to Jesus is the only way to begin to deal with the problem of sin. But having begun there, how then are we to deal with it when we continue to sin? What do we do with it when, having received salvation, surrendering to Jesus... What do we do when we continue to fail? Do we believe that that continued sin proves that we were never saved in the first place? And thus that we have to try to get saved again and again and again? Or do we just ignore it? Do we just wink at it because we've already got our ticket to heaven? To do so is not only to fail to fall far short of a biblical understanding of what salvation even means. But it is also to resign ourselves to a life that is devoid of transformation and growth and power. And make no mistake, Jesus is supremely interested in our transformation and our growth. He is incredibly invested in pouring spiritual power into us. So let us be very resistant to the idea that salvation or soteriology, as it is called in the theological world, let us be very resistant to the idea that our soteriology is separate from our transformation or sanctification the two, salvation and transformation, are indelibly, inextricably intertwined. Now, here's the hard reality that we each must face sin is our share of the darkness that we are experiencing. Yes. Of course much of the dar- darkness that we would desire to push back it's due primarily to external factors to the extent that we might see ourselves as victims or at least as unwilling re- recipients but when we acknowledge our sin we acknowledge that we are responsible for some share of the darkness It is not just our small, private, individual acts of wrongdoing. It is that God has desired for our lives and for His church and for His whole world to work in harmony, in shalom. And we have disturbed that harmony. We have broken that shalom. We have failed to do the good we know we ought to have done And we have instead done so much of the wrong we know we ought not have done. And when we have done so, we have not just broken some abstract moral law that's accounted for in a ledger book in the heavens. We have grieved God. We have grieved Him. You see, the problem of sin is not primarily a legal problem. It is primarily a relational one. That although God has revealed Himself to us as a loving Father, and although He has showered upon us blessing and love, and although He has proven to us His Goodness and the the incalculable depths of his love. And though he has stood ready to bless us and to lead us into his plans to unleash goodness and deliverance and happiness upon the world, we have instead, in one little way after another, said, No thanks. I'll do it my way. How then can we celebrate without first dealing with the problem of sin? We can't. So, now having acknowledged this critical aspect of the darkness that we face, both in this season and in our lives in general the part of the darkness that we are responsible for, we can now fill in this last big missing piece from our theology of celebration. Richard Foster writes, Without obedience, joy is hollow and artificial. To elicit genuine celebration, obedience must work itself into the ordinary fabric of our daily lives. He goes on. We will not know genuine joy until there is a transforming work within us. Many people try to come into joy far too soon. Often we try to pump up people with joy when in reality nothing has happened in their lives. God has not broken into the routine experiences of their daily existence. Celebration comes when the common ventures of life are redeemed. So if we fail or refuse to acknowledge our sin, but then we put on an air of celebration, our celebration is premature at best or offensive to God and destructive to us at worst. So this last missing piece of our theology of celebration. I've already alluded to it. It's repentance. This is why Paul writes to the Corinthians about their celebration of the Eucharist. He writes, But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. But, of course, there must be divisions among you so that you, will have, so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. He goes on a few few verses down. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Jesus and Paul and the rest of the New Testament church practiced communion as a festive meal, a celebration in the truest sense of the word. But there was something in the approach of these Corinthian Christians that was defiling the whole thing. The Christians were not only importing their own individual unrepentant sin, but then in their shared meal, they were actively neglecting the poor and getting drunk on the wine. And Paul says that by doing so, they were inviting the wrath and the judgment of God upon themselves. He even says that because of this, some of them had gotten sick, some of them had even died. Which brings me to my central point for today. There can be no true celebration without repentance. As you survey the landscape of your life, the state of your key relationships, the habits and the rhythms and the choices that make up your daily existence, your life as it is right now. Are you accounting for your own sin? Are you, is there a place in your daily life for acknowledging your sin? Or do you go through a day, a few days, a week, a month, longer without serious consideration before God of your failures to do the good that was yours to do. When we live that way, we just end up importing our unacknowledged, unaccounted for darkness into the broader communities that we inhabit, where it will do corrosive work more broadly. And when we do that, our celebrations will be shallow, and anemic, and they might even be destructive. So what then are we to do? The answer is the same for us as it has always been for the people of God. And for a fuller treatment of that, let's turn to our main text for today. Isaiah chapter 40. We will pick it up. In verse 3. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice the voice is saying to prepare the way where? In the wilderness. In the midbar, the Hebrew word that we looked at a few weeks ago. Prepare the way in the liminal space of the desert, the wilderness. And who is this voice that is making this call? Is it Isaiah? Is it someone else? Well, all four gospel writers would later tell us that Isaiah was looking ahead in time and he was hearing the voice of none other than Jesus' own cousin, John the Baptist. And at the heart of John's message and his ministry was this prepare the way. Prepare the way. The Lord is coming, he said, so get yourselves ready. This is what the liminal space is for, to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. This is why God leads his people into and through the wilderness, so that he can come to them in fullness, with power, with healing in his wings. In the wilderness, the prophetic call is to prepare the way. I want to be very clear here. In the season of Advent, year after year, we look ahead to the end of history when Jesus will finally, fully come again in power to set everything right that has gone so horribly wrong. And as we do, we pray the ancient prayer. It's the final words in the scriptures. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, and let us never stop looking to that distant horizon. But in this liminal space, in this season of darkness, we need to have an expectation and a prayer that is far more immediate than just some distant abstract idea of him coming somewhere off in the distant future. We need him now. We need his presence now. We need his healing and his deliverance now. We need him to save the soul of our society now. We need a rescue from our sin now. We need Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Now. And the prophetic call is the same to us now as it was to Judah in Isaiah's day, the same as it was to the crowds in the Galilean wilderness in John's day. Prepare the way. Get yourselves ready. John the Baptist, through the pen of Isaiah, 700 years in advance, says to us, 2,000 years later, 2,700 years after Isaiah, he says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places, a plain. John Wesley would pick up this Idea and later pen the lyrics Let every heart prepare him room. The Savior is coming. We're on the threshold of a full celebration of His coming. He is coming, not just in the distant future, it is imminent. He is coming to deliver His people from the judgment of God and from the power of sin. So will you prepare your heart? Will you create room for him? Will you clear out the clutter of your own disordered desires? The power of sin is considerable. It wreaks havoc on our lives and on our world. It plays out in the way a husband speaks to his wife. It plays out in the way a student quietly plagiarizes in their writing. In the way an employee takes smug satisfaction in their boss or their colleague failing. It plays out in the way we withhold our money and our resources from the poor and from the church in the way we withhold our affection from our family members, in the way we overindulge in pleasure and entertainment, in the way we neglect prayer and worship, in countless other ways we become enslaved so that we do what we don't want to do and we don't do what we do want to do. Maybe you feel the thrum of guilt from something, something that's just happened in your life, something that you have just done. Or maybe there's something from months ago, maybe it's from years ago, that you just never dealt with. You said to yourself, I'm just going to take this to the grave. I'm never going to tell anyone about this. Maybe you lied to someone. Maybe you did something that caused someone a great deal of pain. Jesus is calling you this afternoon to own up, to admit it, to bring it out into the open so that his light, the radiance of his love can shine on it. And as we look to celebrate this season, the coming of Messiah in history, there can be no true celebration without repentance. So right now, just right where you are, can I ask you to to close your eyes if you're able? Maybe kids are screaming in the background. Maybe, Maybe you're somewhere where it's not appropriate. But if you can, would you close your eyes? Would you tune the, the ears of your heart, so to speak, to listen, to hear that Jesus is calling to you. He is knocking at the door. He's inviting you to draw near though you have grieved him, even though you have pushed him away, yet he is coming with an offering of living water. He's asking you to stop drinking from those poison wells. They will never satisfy. You will never find what you are looking for there. Would you tune your ears right where you are to hear the voice of the prophet saying, prepare the way. He is coming with healing, with deliverance, with salvation in His wings, with the power to break the destructive patterns of sin that we have been resigned to. And so as we close, listen to the words of the psalmist. Listen to what he describes will come to those who experience the forgiveness of the Lord. You can open your eyes so you can see the text of Psalm 32. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the one. And anytime you read blessed or blessed in the Bible, think happy. So he's saying, happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one. Happy is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. And in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. You will surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is what God says. I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked. Hear these words, Canopy Church. Many are the woes of the wicked. But the Lord's unfailing love Surrounds the one who trusts in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us, for we are sinners. I do not believe that is all we are. God, even as your kingdom itself is now and not yet, so too are we. We are saints and we are also sinners. In this moment, and in this season, would you strip all the things away that that we've become so entangled in? Would you allow us to throw off the things that are holding us back, this sin that trips us up? Would you deliver us from evil? And would you cause your light to shine upon us? We pray in the power the name of Jesus